0: Please turn with me uh, to uh, Job chapter 6, as we continue in our series to the book of Job. We are this morning into chapter 6, and I would like to read verses 1 through 13, which is the first section, really, of Job 6, first main section. This morning, the message will be through on verses 1 through 7 hear God's word from Job 6. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Words are powerful, very powerful. In fact, God created this world using words and calling this universe into existence. Words proceed out of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and we might say that words are, we might define words as thoughts being brought out into the open. Words are a means by which thoughts can affect the physical world. God in eternity had invisible thoughts. He had a plan known only to him, and according to that plan, he will to create a visible physical universe. The Son of God is called the Word because he created the world by bringing into existence God's thoughts concerning a physical universe. And likewise, when we speak out of the overflow of our hearts, we affect the world around us. Of course, our words are not as powerful as God's, not even close. God's words always accomplish his will. He merely has to speak and it comes to pass. Our words are far from having that kind of power, and yet they still wield some power as God grants them such. And in a way that mirrors God, our thoughts are given life as words come out of our mouths. And as we think specifically about our words directed toward other people, we should recognize the power of our words to affect people's lives. For example, our words can be a source of great encouragement. They can also be a source of great discouragement. And uh, through our words, we can help people or we can hurt people. We can give them the words of life. We can give them the truths of God's words, uh, of God's word and especially the, the truth of the gospel of salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. Or we can give people words of death as we tell them lies or, or as we perhaps incite them to walk in the paths of sin. We must not underestimate the impact of our words for good or ill let's put ourselves in Job's shoes and consider the interaction so far that he has had with his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Back in chapter 2, we learned that these men received news of Job's disasters, of how he had lost his livelihood and his children and then his health and all within a very short period of time. And hearing what had happened to Job, his three friends came for a visit. And we are told what they intended to intended to do back in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says to show him sympathy and comfort him. And I want to remind you that the word for comfort there in the Hebrew is an action word that means to speak to the mind and heart of a person who is suffering so that that person's heart and mind are changed. So the idea is of comfort that comes through the power of words. But none of Job's friends spoke a word to him for seven days. There were sounds that came out of their mouths, but only the sounds of weeping as they mourned for their friend. And so what they gave Job was really sympathy without comfort. But then Eliphaz spoke, and his first speech took up chapters 4 and 5. What he told Job came in four bursts that I have called four sermons, though they probably came one right after the other. But we can find at least four separate themes that we that, that are there in Eliphaz's words in chapters four and five. In uh, chapter four, verses one through eleven, Eliphaz rebuked Job for not handling his suffering well. He reminds Job of how he, that is Job, had helped many suffering people by counseling them with his words. And he essentially tells Job You need to tell these words, speak these very words that you've spoken to others to yourself. Um, what he needs to remember, Eliphaz says, is that if he is innocent, if he is upright, if he is a person of integrity who fears God, the sun is going to come out tomorrow. Things will turn around for you, Job, Eliphaz says, if you in fact are a man of integrity. And then Eliphaz turns in chapter 4, verses 12 through 5, verse 7, to explaining to Job a word that presumably presumably came to him from God in the form of a dream. And what Iliphaz claims to have heard was the humbling message that we as mortal men are weak and imperfect creatures and our calling, therefore, is to humbly accept whatever God has for us. He wants Job to submit to the reality that we are not in any way to question God or to get worked up when, as sinful creatures, God brings hardships into our lives. And then thirdly, he turns and chapter 5, verses 8 through 16, back to the theme of God reversing the misfortunes of his people. Uh, Eliphaz sets forth, God is the one who brings us the good things of earthly prosperity. God is the one who stands up for the oppressed and gives them justice. Job, Eliphaz is saying, you need to trust God to just to take care of you. And then finally, Job is told, in chapter 5, verses 17 through 27, to take encouragement from the fact that God blesses his people through discipline. Again, Eliphaz sets forth the idea that if you're being disciplined by God out of love, then things are going to turn around for you because your life is going to be marked by peace because God is a God who binds up and, and he heals. These were the words of Eliphaz to Job. And there are throughout these. Words of Eliphaz throughout chapters 4 and 5, these veiled accusations. If Job is being disciplined, then that would mean that he has sinned and that what is happening in his life is a direct consequence of his sin. And his hardships then are a call to repentance. And yet Eliphaz doesn't come out directly calling Job to repentance. But he talks about the prosperity that comes in the way of discipline. But of course, these blessings come only in the way of repentance as the fruit of discipline. It seems Eliphaz expects Job to read between the lines and to understand that the goal of discipline is repentance as the way of restoration. And then there's the veiled charge that Job's sins are the cause of his trials because troubles don't just come out of the ground, but they're due to sin. And then there's the veiled charge that he's a fool because it's the fool whose children are unexpectedly killed. And then there's the veiled charge that he perhaps is not a man of integrity who fears God after all. But Eliphaz apparently believes that the truth is going to come out soon enough of what Job is truly like by whether or not things turn around for him. So, what is the effect of Eliphaz's words on Job? Well, sometimes, right, a friend will tell us truth that really hits the nail on the head, and yet we don't want to hear it. The reasons for not wanting to hear it usually have to do with pride. We don't want to hear anything about us needing to change. We don't want to hear that we've done something wrong. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to admit our faults. We don't want to seek forgiveness from God and others. And sometimes what is painful to hear is being said in love, and it is, in fact, geared to help us. And this should tell us that we should not automatically reject words that we don't like. You and I need to recognize the wisdom of Proverbs 27, 6, where it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. At the same time, there can be words that are plain cruel. They're not true, they're not helpful, and they should be rejected. And when a person responds to or advice or rebukes by rejecting what is being said, it should not be automatically assumed that that person is being pridefully defensive. It may be that the words that he is hearing are not wise. Maybe they, they are words that are truly out of touch with reality. They're not appropriate to the occasion. It can happen that a person says the right words. These, the words are true, but they're not said in the right way. They're not said in the right tone, or they may be misapplied to a particular person or situation. And if that happens, we should not be surprised by a person's rejection of those words. Well, we know that Eliphaz's words are not appropriately geared to what Job needs to hear. While Eliphaz has said some things that are biblical, he has misread the situation. For we have been given a revelation from the very courts of heaven that Job's sufferings are not due to sin in his life. And so you can easily imagine how Job is going to respond to Eliphaz even before you begin reading chapter 6. It's easy to predict that what Eliphaz has said has only added to Job's grief. And so it's not surprising that Job is going to react rather emotionally. I'm going to be borrowing um, portions of Christopher Ashe's outline as we go through chapter 6, though with some significant modifications. And what stands out about verses 1 through 13 is Job's expression of vexation over how God is treating him while verses 14 through 30 is Job's expressing disappointment in his friends. Chapter 7 is also part of Job's response to Eliphaz, although chapter 7 is addressed to God, while chapter 6 is addressed to his friends. So that's in general the outline for chapter 6 and 7. I want to consider now in some detail Job's expression of vexation to his friends over what's going on in his life. This will take us through uh, from verses 1 through 13, although this morning, as I indicated earlier, we are only going to be considering verses 1 through 7. And uh, in verses 2 through 3, we have an exclamation. In verse 4, we have an explanation. And then in verses 5 through 7, an illustration. So we have an exclamation, an explanation, and an illustration. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks their poison, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. These opening words of chapter 6 reveal a Job who is getting tired. He is getting frustrated. We might say already, because this is going to go on. He's already frustrated with the lack of comfort from his friends. Notice Job is not embarrassed to use the word for vexation that Iliphaz presented in chapter 5, verse 2. As a characteristic of the fool, there, Eliphaz wrote, surely vexation kills the fool. And Now, Job boldly says in chapter 6, verse 2, oh, that my vexation were weighed. The word vexation translates a Hebrew word that refers to being hot and bothered about something, And it can involve anger. It is sometimes even translated that way. And so we find the word translated in our Bibles as anger, as wrath, as resentment, as irritation, as vexation, as anguish, as misery. Even sometimes the word grief is used. And if we're going to translate chapter 6, verse 2 with the word grief we need to understand that this word does not simply refer to struggling with sadness, but it's really grief over grief. It's it's a grief that involves a sense of frustration and irritation over why these grievous things are happening. And you and I need to be warned that vexation can be sinful, it could be sinful, if it involves anger directed toward God. And there certainly is foolish anger that can take place where we as sinners question God with an Upraised fist, demanding that God answer our questions and explain himself to us. That's different from grief and frustration born out of trying to understand, trying to reckon with a difficult situation that seems unfair, that doesn't seem to fit into what we expect of God's perfect good plan. Well, Eliphaz was pushing Job toward an ungodly form of vexation by repeatedly explaining to Job a worldview that only confirmed for him that what was happening doesn't fit the norm. For Eliphaz was saying that if a person is in a right relationship with God, his life is going to be marked by peace and prosperity. But Job is in a right relationship with God. Not only is he saved, he is living in close fellowship with God as a man who fears God, who is blameless, who is upright. Even God himself used those words to describe Job. Eliphaz was <coughs> actually building up Job's vexation because what Eliphaz says, what he, what, he, what he said to Job, doesn't match up with reality for Job. What he said left Job all the more confused. For Eliphaz taught the accepted doctrine of that day, and what many still want to believe, and which, I think if we're honest, even we would love to believe, this idea that godly, pious people do not suffer, or at least not for long. And so what Eliphaz is saying doesn't match up with a godly man like Job, who is suffering tremendously with no relief in sight. And so Job is left wondering what's going on. He knows he's in a right relationship with God. Meanwhile, Eliphaz is not helping Job to understand the purpose of his calamity. And while we have no reason to question Eliphaz's good intentions, he inadvertently ends up reminding Job over and over again how what is happening to him is not the norm and doesn't have a good explanation. This leaves Job so overwhelmed with the weight of his grief that he says, if it could be weighed in the balances, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. And so there is some vexation going on. Notice how Job is even willing to acknowledge that his words have been rash there in verse 3. He says, therefore, my words have been rash. He's not hiding it. He's boldly saying, yes, they've been rash. And he's reacted this way because of the horrible weight over, uh, of, of his grief over calamity that does not seem fair. It does not seem Just. The word rash means something like wild or impetuous. He realizes that his words of lament have been emotionally dramatic. He doesn't apologize for this. He doesn't apologize for his rash words. This is because the pain of his loss, the pain of not understanding the purpose of what's happening, have overwhelmed him. In verse 4, Job explains the root cause of his deep struggles. He, he pictures himself as being hit by poison arrows. He describes himself as having terrors arrayed against him. But notice who is shooting him. Who's shooting him with these poison arrows? Who's bringing these terrors against him? It's God. Verse 4, the terrors there spoken of in verse 4 from God. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. This word terrors is a word that Hebrew word that's used only here, and in Psalm 88, verse 16. And there in the psalm it says, Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. And uh, the terrors of Job 6, verse 4, are the same thing as the dreadful assaults of Psalm 88, 16. And uh, there the psalmist says that these dreadful assaults are the result of God's wrath. And so what Job is communicating is that at the heart of his struggle is that he knows God is sovereign over all that is happening to him. And his grief is not simply that he is experiencing events that are like poison arrows or that can be accurately described as, as terrors. His frustration is not being attacked by Satan. His struggle is about knowing that all of these error, arrows and, and terrors are ultimately from God. He feels like he's under the wrath of God. That's the problem a man of faith, righteous in the sight of God, redeemed, and in fellowship with God, why would God's wrath be against him? If life is knowing God, if life, true life, is eternal life, a life of fellowship with God in Jesus Christ, a life of joy and blessing and comfort and fulfillment, then to be under the wrath of God is the opposite of life. It is to experience death. And I would argue that even worse than death for an unbeliever would be for a believer to experience life with God and to taste and see that indeed the Lord is good and then to experience him turning his face away in wrath, to experience death after life, to experience death that makes no sense and seems to be an end of of any covenant fellowship with God. That's what Job's deep struggle is all about. It's the confusion surrounding His relationship with God, that's the source of his vexation and these rash outbursts of grief. In verses 5 through 7, Job offers an illustration as to why he is crying out in anguish. He had first to have us consider the the wild donkey and the ox. Uh, When these animals get the food that they need and desire, they are content. They're quiet. They don't cry out. The wild donkey who has the grass he needs doesn't bray. The ox who has his hay and grain doesn't low. They're quietly content. So, what happens if you don't get what you need? Well, you naturally cry out. The donkey who is starving is going to bray. The ox who has been working all day in the field and who is hungry and doesn't get what he needs is going to low. They are going to make noise until they are fed. And then Job turns to thinking about himself, about us, and about our food. What would you do if you were offered tasteless food? What about nasty food? It's interesting to consider what eating is like for a person without a sense of smell and taste. I had a friend who had no sense of smell and you talk to somebody about that uh, what eating is like they talk about how what makes something appetizing or not is really the texture of the food and while the hebrew of verse 6 talking about the the juice of the malo malo is is not perfectly clear a study of this expression brings out that most think that job here is talking about some kind of slimy nauseating food some commentators say that Job here is talking about slimy cream cheese. That sounds disgusting, does it not? Others say that this is talking about egg whites, like raw egg whites that are slimy. Others believe that it's talking here about an herb called purslane that um, actually I was, did some research because I not, wasn't familiar with this. Um, it's something that people do eat, but it has a very gelatinous, slimy texture, And so you can see the pattern. It seems that Job is talking about some slimy food that is very unappetizing based on the texture. And the basic point of this illustration is that there is a reason for everything that occurs. Donkeys bray when they are hungry. They're quiet when they're satisfied. Tasteless food and slimy foods are hard to get down. And so it's only natural that there would be a certain reaction And the reaction typically would be hey, if you have tasteless food, you're going to add salt. You're probably going to stay away from foods that are loathsome, that are nauseous, uh, that make us nauseous. Likewise, and here's the point it's only natural that someone going through a great time of suffering is going to lament. It's only natural that they're going to express their grief. There's perhaps another angle of interpretation. And meaning that could be taken from Job's illustration here about food. (coughs) God has created us as creatures to desire a certain level of comfort and enjoyment. Even animals are given earthly provisions by God that satisfy their desires, even if it's simple grass or grain. And for us, think of it, God has given us taste buds so that we can enjoy, actually enjoy an abundance of different foods with all of their unique and wonderful flavors. Well, what if suddenly food has no taste? What if all of, all of the food that you had was slimy? What if you said something about it and your friends heard you? Would it be right for them to jump all over you and accuse you of complaining? Would it be right for them to say to you, Stop your griping. Eat your flavorless slimy starch. Why, why do you think you need to have food with a good taste? Why do you think food has to have a certain texture? Stop being so picky. At least you have food. We can acknowledge that there's some truth and validity to those kinds of statements. We, sh- we shouldn't have to have the best tasting food in the world before we eat it. We should be eating, uh, willing to eat whatever is set before us as long as it is edible without complaint. Even if all we have every day is beans and rice or plain oatmeal, we should be content the same time do we not normally add some kind of flavor enhancer to bland foods? We typically are going to add salt to rice and beans. We're going to add brown sugar to oatmeal. Well, what if we didn't have spices and flavorings? Wouldn't it be even natural to think and to say, well, this is disappointing. I wish we had a bit of salt or sugar. Of course, a person might complain in a sinful way and they might put their, 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 their fists down and say, without any flavor, I'm not going to eat this at all. And then we would have to say, well, I understand you wanting to have some flavor, but to not eat at all, that's taking things too far. You need to be thankful that you at least have something to eat. And as for slimy foods, whether they are slimy because they're rotten or it's just a matter of texture, I don't think that we would typically come down hard on someone who didn't want to partake. I think we would be understanding well, this is all Job was expecting from his friends. Just acknowledge that he is going through a tough time that anybody would find difficult. Just acknowledge that you also would cry out in anguish and say some emotional things if you were going through the same thing. Show some sympathy. Acknowledge that we are used to having some good things in life, some things that are enjoyable, and don't call it complaining if life has suddenly become void of goodness. And the sufferer calls attention to it. Don't be hard on the person who doesn't want to participate anymore in a life that is loathsome. That's normal. And there are some lessons here for us to learn. There's a lesson here regarding Christian suffering. Suffering is not sinful. Grieving is not necessarily sinful. Expressing sorrow is not to be automatically judged as sinful. Talking to your friends about your struggles is not necessarily sinful. Vexation and rash words along the lines of what Job expressed are not sinful if it's simply a matter of expressing deeply felt emotions. It's good for us to understand where the line is between sinful and godly responses to suffering because it certainly is possible to allow ungodly thoughts and words and actions to erupt in the context of suffering. How we grieve and express sorrow and talk about it can delve into the realm of sin very easily. There certainly are forms of vexation and rashness that belong to the fool. So where is the line? Let me suggest some ways to discern the difference. I think what is helpful in understanding the nature of proper godly suffering is to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where we find the only reference in Scripture to the exact wording of godly sorrow or godly grief. And uh, while this passage is specifically focused on the sorrow that is sur- is to surround the godly practice of repentance, there is an important principle to be gleaned from this passage that helps define godly sorrow in a more general way. Notice uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, where the Apostle Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death and so this passage teaches us that godly sorrow always leads us closer to god while worldly ungodly sorrow is always focused on oneself And drives us away from God. So let's apply this principle. If in your sorrow you are continuing to pray to God in a spirit of humility and love, that is godly sorrow. Notice in your study of the Psalms how often the psalmist is venting sorrow, but he's bringing his needs to God in prayer. The ungodly person is going to refuse to go to God in prayer, or his so-called prayers are only going to be nothing but venting anger against God. If in my sorrow I am still giving thanks to God, that's a good sign. We're told in Philippians 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. And to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You're not required to enjoy suffering, but you can express to God that what you're going through is difficult. You can express to him that you would like it to end. But are you also thankful at the same time for God's work in your life that is still going on through suffering? Are you thankful he still works all things together for your good? Are you thankful for the humility and the character building and the increased fellowship with God that takes place as suffering forces you to lean on God? You count it all joy to suffer as James commands. Do you endure and persevere through your suffering because you know that that is what God wants and because you want the spiritual benefits that come in the way of not giving in but continuing to persevere in your faith? A worldly sorrow never rises above self. It's a sorrow that's all about feeling sorry for oneself. It's a sorrow about being angry with God about what he is doing. It's about being unhappy as long as the suffering continues. Raises another particular element that is often a part of suffering that also serves to distinguish the sorrow of the believer from that of the unbeliever. And the, the element of suffering I'm referring to is a questioning of God. Do you have questions about your suffering that you would like God to answer? You may be wondering why God is doing what he is doing in your life, having an inquisitive mind is consistent with godliness as long as you are not firing questions at God in anger. One way to determine the nature of your questioning is to examine yourself as to whether or not you really want an answer from God. Sometimes people fire off angry questions not really wanting an answer. They're actually trying to make a point. If an employee might ask his boss some, about some policy that he doesn't like, and he might say, why do you have this policy? And the employee is perhaps not truly trying to understand why, not truly expecting a reasonable answer, but is asking the question as a way to gripe. You and I can do the same thing in our questions to God. We're not necessarily coming to God as a humble student truly trying to understand the position that the teacher has taken. We're not necessarily asking questions of God in a spirit of humility and respect. And one way to discern the spirit in which we ask God questions is to consider, are we going to be happy only if he gives us the answer that we want? If all we want is our own way and we are questioning God to get him to do what we want him to do, we've crossed the line into ungodly sorrow. And some, our sorrow needs to be handled in a way that honors God's sovereignty and leads us closer to him. There's also an important lesson here regarding true friendship and how that friendship should look when ministering to a friend who is suffering. First, you are to be sympathetic and gracious and understanding with those who are suffering. Don't be ready to condemn them. Don't be ready to explain what is happening as though you have some infallible knowledge of the situation. Be ready to listen and to speak comforting words of truth that you know, absolutely know, are appropriate to the situation. second, so be ready to comfort with the gospel. We have yet to read how Job's friends are going to respond to what he says here in chapter 6. We're going to read, consider chapter 6 and 7, and then we're going to have hear some more from his friends, and we don't know yet you can read ahead but we don't know yet what is going to be said but how would you respond as a friend you can think about and practice being a good friend by contemplating what you would say in response so for example job has just said that he feels like god is attacking him with poison arrows that he feels as though he's under the wrath of God, that he feels like God has withdrawn from him and that there's almost nothing of goodness left to experience in life, what would you say? Let me suggest that this would be the time to present the gospel. This would be the time to explain to Job that the wrath of God is only against those who are unreconciled to God and Jesus Christ. God's poison arrows flowing out of the terrors of his wrath are never going to come against his redeemed people. And the reason is because God has promised that his wrath is turned away from all who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And since forgiveness of our sins is on the basis of what the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has done for us, faith is looking to him for peace with God. Faith in Jesus Christ is trusting that on the cross there he truly suffered and he died for our sins in such a way that God's wrath against our sins is completely quenched. So you might begin by talking to Job about his faith. You might inquire, are you trusting in the Messiah to come? Because, of course, in his day, Christ had not yet come, but his faith was in the Messiah to come that God had promised. Job, are you trusting in God's provision for sin? Are you trusting in the work of this one who is going to come according to God's promise? Might ask him what is his hope for eternal life, but we know Job is a man of faith because Scripture tells us so. It tells us that Job is righteous. And the only way to be righteous is by faith. So knowing he is trusting in God's provision for sin and the Messiah, we know he's not an object of God's wrath. This doesn't mean we should then come down hard on Job and ask him, How in the world, Job, could you ever think such a thing? Don't you believe the gospel, Job? What would be a better approach would be to say something like, Job, I realize that what has happened to you certainly feels like God's wrath. It certainly makes us stop and think, does it not? Your circumstances understandably feel something like what the wicked unbelievers are going to face one day. But Job, don't allow your feelings to rule you. The words of God should guide your feelings and not vice versa. You don't let your feelings tell you what to believe about God. And the word of God that you must not ever forget is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you see, that is a word that is always appropriate and applies to believers in all circumstances. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the provision of sin that has been made in him, that your wrath has been quenched. And yet, Father, we confess that in the struggles of life, it can very much at times feel like your wrath has come against us. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to believe your promises. Help us, Lord, to trust you in the midst of what we face. We, Lord, pray that we would be good friends to those who are in need of comfort that our words would be powerfully used by you to bring comfort, that our words would be used wisely in the the right situations, in the right way, with the right tone. Lord, may we be sympathetic with those who are struggling and realize that just voicing our struggles is not sin. Talking about our struggles is not sin, not necessarily. Lord, we pray that we would realize that life is difficult, and it's okay to acknowledge that. But, Lord, we thank you that we have you. We thank you that we have your word, that we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, Father, we pray that you would comfort us, that we would then be able to be a source of comfort to others, that there really is hope in the midst of the struggles of life, and that our struggles are not a reflection upon our relationship with you in the sense of how we tend to view bad things happening, difficult things happening as meaning we're under your wrath. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to see the lessons here in Job, that there are many reasons for suffering, and uh, all of them are a part of your plan. Part, all of them are sent in, in your wisdom. And uh, Father, so help us to submit to you, to accept your will, whatever it may be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.